0: A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me for this fourth study now, and this series of studies we've been doing in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 32. Today, we've come to verse 26. And for the second time, we find Paul using the words, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, God gave them up. God gave them up. The first time is back in verse 24. So let's go back and see that verse again before we read this. Actually, it'll fit together better if we start back up in verse 21. So let's start there. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now, we've already looked at those verses. We looked at those in the second study in this series. And then we looked at verses 23 through 25 in the previous study to this. That would be the third study. Verse 23 says, And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. There it is. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So God's telling us through Paul that men who reject him, that is God, are totally without excuse. Men just don't want God in their lives, so they try to construct a personal worldview that leaves God out and allows them to live in the center of their choice. God never forces anyone to stop sinning. Humans are free to sin. But God warns us many times in his word in very stark and clear terms that the consequences of our sins will be very, very serious if we refuse to repent. If we continue in sin, we will suffer horrific consequences. That's why Jesus came so we could be forgiven of our sins, but we must repent. So God's told people that they're totally without excuse because he's provided all the evidence anyone needs to know in order to find God. Anybody can, if they want to find him. So God calls these people fools. They're fools because they reject God in spite of all the evidence that will point them to him if they'll just look. And he's told us that because they rejected him, their thinking was messed up. Their thinking, he said, is futile. It became futile in their thinking. Their minds, he said, are darkened. They think they're wise. But they're not. They're the opposite of wise. They're fools. They've chosen to exchange the truth about God for a lie. And that brings us to verse 26. Now, I want us just to look at the first part of that verse for a few minutes. Here, verse 26, the first part says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For this reason, God gave them up. To dishonorable passion so he starts the, starts the verse with the words for this reason for this for what reason well because they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie he just told us that they've chosen to reject the true God so they continue in their sexual sin. they've chosen for themselves gods that are mere images sometimes images made of wood or metal sometimes images that are entirely in their imaginations. Why did they do this? Well, because they know that if they acknowledge the true God, they're going to have to acknowledge that they're accountable to him, the true God. He's a just judge. They wish to be accountable to no one. They love their sin, even though it's slowly, sometimes not so slowly, actually, destroying them. And in this verse, God tells us that they have what he calls dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions which he has given them up to. The word translated passions here in this verse is only used three times in the New Testament, and all three times it's associated with sexual sin of some kind, immorality, impurity. It's a pretty close synonym to the word we've already looked at back in verse 24 that's sometimes translated lust or passions. The word dishonorable implies shameful or disgraceful. The New American Standard and the Christian Standard Bible both translate it degrading. So they chose to make their sexual desires part of their identity, and God gave them up to what they wanted. But God does tell us the truth about these desires. They're not part of anybody's innate identity. Oh, no. These desires are shameful, degrading, sexually related passions and lusts. And in the following sentences that come right after this, God makes it very clear. He's talking specifically at this point about lesbianism and homosexuality. So let's read it. Verse 26 again. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The words in this passage, natural relations, simply mean that the way God created men and women physically Make it very clear how God intended sex to work, natural relations. In these final words of verse 27, he said, Receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. It means even in Paul's day, people were aware of bad outcomes. If they engaged in sex in a way other than the way God intended for sex to be used, he created it as a wonderful blessing between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, and a covenant of marriage. So he's talking about things like maybe STDs and diseases like HIV would be included here. But there are other bad consequences of homosexual behavior too. Some of them I've heard about and read about. I don't want to discuss them. They can be horrifically ugly. And there are other bad consequences that include our emotions and our thinking, all kinds of bad outcomes in themselves. Now, you are aware, I'm sure keenly aware, that we're living in a day when many, many people do not like these verses. They consider them to be barbaric. And if we take these verses seriously, as we must, because they're part of God's Word, right? Some people are going to tell us that we're going to find ourselves on the wrong side of history. (laughs) You heard that? If we accept them as part of God's Word, some people will say, Hey, that makes you a bigot. That makes you a hater. And again, many in our day embrace these sins as part of their identity. In other words, they just consider their behavior when it comes to sex to be in the same kind of category as their skin color, or maybe their eye color, or their hair color, or their height, or their shoe size, or their blood type. You know what I'm saying there. So we need to understand exactly what God teaches us in his word about all this. We need to make sure we get it straight in our own minds. Now, what I'm going to share with you next is largely taken from notes I made and shared as a post on this topic a few years ago. So if you saw that or listened to that, this may sound familiar to some of you. But if you're like me, (laughs) I often learn more on the second hearing than I did the first, right? Yeah, you know how that works many in today's sexual revolution really do believe that their sexual orientation or their gender identification is simply part of who they are. And if we tell them that God's not pleased with what they're doing or that God wants them to repent of sin, in their minds, they're convinced that it's just the same as if we said to maybe an African-American that it was sinful for him or her to have so much melanin in their skin. You know, that would be pretty stupid, wouldn't it? Well, in the minds of these homosexuals, it's just part of their identity. It's just who they are. So to many people, for us to say that any of the behavior, we're talking about behaviors associated with the LGBTQ movement, if we say any of it's sinful, it's the same as saying it's sinful to be an African American. And obviously that would be plain stupid and bigoted, right? Of course it would. So we're in a dilemma here. There are going to be some people to whom we will seem very hateful and very unloving no matter what we say or how we say it unless we decide to ignore God's Word and totally agree with them that their behavior is normal and good. So if we believe what God says in His Word, that their behavior is not normal and not good, It seems that there's no way to escape this label of being hateful or unloving or bigoted. And I think that's so sad because it stops a lot of communication that could really be helpful to a lot of people. Now, of course, we know that Jesus warned us about this kind of thing. He said, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. You remember Jesus said that, John records that in John chapter 15. So we shouldn't be terribly surprised, but here we are, and we have to deal with it. And we need to learn to be clear, but very loving, and really thick-skinned. Got to be. Another sad fact that complicates all this is that, unfortunately, there really are people who call themselves Christians, who really do seem to be full of hate, and full of anger, and full of venom, and real bigotry toward people who are maybe part of the sexual revolution. That makes things a lot more difficult for us, doesn't it? Because we're trying to be Christ-like. And when there are people out there who claim to be on our side, but they're being very unchrist like makes it difficult. Got a lot of praying to do. But even if we realize that there are some who will call us bigots, no matter what, unless we just agree with them, We still have to make every effort to love them and be loving in our responses. Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies even. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. But love includes speaking the truth. You can't love people without telling them the truth. Telling them the truth is part of what it means to love people. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul wrote, rather speaking the truth in love. Isn't that beautiful? Speaking the truth in love, we to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's what we need to learn how to do. So if they're going to accuse us of hate, we need to make sure <laughs> that they're accusing us not because we are actually hating them because we don't hate them. We need to make sure they're accusing us in spite of our love for them simply because we agree with God instead of agreeing with them, even if they call it hate. And if we have the opportunity to have conversations with those who identify as being part of the LGBT community and it's getting more and more likely that will be true, some cases it's part of our own families, I know, we need to pray really hard that we can know how to show them love and compassion and grace on the one hand, while on the other hand, refusing to compromise what God teaches in His Word, refusing to back off refusing to be cowed and intimidated from speaking the truth because we're afraid somebody will be offended. That would be a sin against them. You understand that? It'd be a sin against God. And all of this can be a serious challenge for us. We need a lot of prayer. <laughs> Let me give you an example of what I perceive as one of the ways we Christians can be lied about. This is just one example. And we need to try to clarify the truth as much as we can, but we have to deal with stuff like this. There are people who embrace homosexual sin, and they think, I've heard them claim, that Christians want to deny them the right to eat in their restaurants or deny them the right to buy things in their hardware stores or their grocery stores or deny them the right to attend their church services. Now, that's a false narrative. I think most all Christian store owners are very happy to sell anything in their store to anyone who wants to buy it. (laughs) I mean, they don't ask people, hey, do you have a particular sin problem before I'll sell you? No, they don't ask people that. They just, you know, they'll they'll sell people a hammer or an item from the bakery. They don't ask about their sin problems. But here's where the confusion sets in. Now, listen closely to me. Tune in here. (laughs) Christians certainly do not want to be forced to celebrate or honor or glorify Sin in any way. That would be a reproach to Jesus, to our relationship to Jesus. So, for a Christian school to be forced, for example, to hire a teacher who would not take a firm stand on the biblical teaching about the sin of homosexual behavior, or as another example, to force a Christian sign maker or maybe a Christian t shirt maker to make a sign or a t-shirt that somehow celebrates sin, any sin, including homosexual sin, that would be wrong. That would be forcing a Christian to violate his conscience. You see that, don't you? Most people would agree it would be wrong, for example, to force a homosexual sign maker to violate his conscience to make a sign that he doesn't want to make that condemns homosexuality. Or suppose there were a private school that happened to be established on Secular humanist principles on a secular humanist philosophy of life. Most people would probably agree they really shouldn't be forced to have a biblical Christian come in and teach biblical doctrine at their school. I mean, we Christians might think that'd be a cool idea, but we don't think they should be forced to allow that to happen. In the same way, Christian churches shouldn't be forced to accept as members anyone who disagrees with their biblical teaching on morality and sin. Most of us can see that, right? I know of no church which doesn't want sinners to come and attend and be there. All sinners are welcome to attend. We love it. We know they might find conviction and find Christ and find the truth. But in most churches, at least all the churches I know, only repentant sinners are welcome to become members. You can't become a member and be wallowing in, excusing and rationalizing, explaining away your sin, saying it's really not sin. We wouldn't accept members that way. We're often misrepresented, though, about these kind of things. You see what I'm saying? One way that might help to understand a Christian's position here is to consider a behavior that almost everybody would consider to be wrong. If we can find something like that. For example, most people, even non-Christians, I think, and even in, in our day, I know this has changed for some people, but most people consider adultery, you know, sex with someone else's wife. It's just wrong. Almost everybody agrees with that. Well... Should Christian stores refuse to sell items to an adulterer? Again, I don't think any store owned by Christians would refuse to sell things to adulterers. They don't ask. I can't imagine they would even want to know what's the sin of the people who are coming into the store. You can sell things to adulterers without endorsing adultery, right? Of course you can. Same can be said about restaurants serving food. You can serve food to all kinds of sinners without endorsing the sin. And the same is true of church attendance, by the way. We can welcome adulterers and all kinds of sinners to attend church without endorsing the adultery, right? Most churches love it when sinful people come into the church, but it would be wrong to ask a store or a restaurant or a church to celebrate or endorse adultery or to imply in some way that it's okay and good. You know, a sign maker should not be forced to make a sign that celebrates adultery, right? A church should not be forced to accept members who advocate or participate in adultery. It's pretty clear, don't you think? I think it is. But people try to muddy the water when it comes to homosexual behavior. Anyway, I urge biblical Christians, if they're given the opportunity, to do their best to engage people in some conversation who disagree with us about these issues. It's going to happen from time to time. But when we do it, we need to pray, God, please give me a loving, gracious spirit. I want to be filled with the spirit of Christ in this communication. Don't want to be ugly. Don't want to be nasty. And, and listen, sometimes we may need to just, just, just say, look, I, I want to hear what you've got to say. I, I really am interested in your story. And then we may need to bite our tongue some for just a while anyway to, to try to be good listeners while we're asking questions that will encourage them to keep talking until we understand where they're coming from. You know, it, it helps to understand things sometimes. We may need to say something like, listen, we may not be able to agree on, with each other about a lot of things, but I really am interested in hearing your story. I'm interested in hearing your perspective. I want to understand as much as I can, so talk to me. And then listen. That can be pretty powerful. I may not have to share everything I believe the Bible teaches all at one time. Sometimes we listen for a while, maybe not responding much to it, maybe to give us something to pray about and then say, God, give me wisdom to know how to respond to this next time we talk. The point i'm trying to make here is that if we're going to have productive conversations with those who are sympathetic to the sexual revolution that's a lot of people in our day it's going to be really hard for us if we start out at the very beginning with them thinking about us you are just a harsh unloving hypocritical hateful bigoted christian <laughs> you don't love me you hate me you don't give a flip about me as a person. You don't care what's going on inside me. You just want to try to force me to change. Well, if that's their attitude going into the conversation, we got a mountain to overcome before we can ever get down to the truth, right? <sighs> Sometimes it's just not easy for us to convince others that we love them. They're going to see us and hear us often through a set of filters based on a lot of junk that they've read that many times is just not true, but they've got that stuff in their mind and they see us through those filters things that have been told them about us. And we need to accept, guys, that we may never be able to convince some people. But we just have to do all in our power to try. But at the same time, this is huge now. Don't miss this. If, if we're not careful, we'll get unbalanced here. Balance. It's so important. <laughs> we want to be loving. But we must never, ever compromise our stand on Scripture. And we must never, ever feel like, ooh, I must not share God's truth about this because somebody's going to get offended. Somebody's not going to like it. No, no, no. We've got to speak the truth where people can hear it and understand. It's what I'm trying to do here. But we do it in love. I hope I've made that point. (laughs) If we've had a friend that we knew to be an alcoholic and if our friend insisted... Taking a shot of whiskey first thing in the morning, every time, every day I get up is the best treatment I can give myself for my alcoholism. If we heard him say something like that, we'd do everything in our power to lovingly convince him that's not true. That's not right. And if he responded to us for saying, you don't love me. If you love me, you'd accept me as I am. By which he would mean you would accept me and you would accept my behavior, my thinking. We'd say, I think someday you'll realize I really do love you. And I wouldn't be a loving friend if I didn't tell you the truth about your bad decisions. And he may kick us out of his house at that point. Same approach, though, is true for sexual sins, guys. We have to speak the truth. We have to speak the truth. People have to hear the truth. Christians have to hear this kind of thing so they'll know how to respond. All right, having said all that, Whether we have the opportunity to share these things with others right away or not, as Christians, guys, I'm assuming those of you who are watching this are Christians, we really need to understand what God says about these things in His Word. We need to understand it. And we especially need to understand what some homosexuals right now, they call themselves Christians. They're saying that the Bible really doesn't condemn their kind of homosexual behavior. We're living in a time when there are members of the LGBTQ community who call themselves Bible-believing Christians. And they say the church has just gotten it wrong in the past. And that we need to take a fresh look at the Bible. And we need to understand some of the arguments that have been offered by some of these people in the LGBT community who claim to be Christians because they're out there, guys. They're writing books about this stuff. One more issue I think we should think about before we look at some of the scriptures here. There are some Christians who will testify that they really do have homosexual temptations but they don't act upon them because they know they've been persuaded by the lord by the by the scriptures by the power of the holy spirit that homosexual behavior is sin they realize that but they struggle with homosexual temptations what do we say about that well listen the truth is if we're honest we all have to deal with different kinds of temptations And different ones of us have different kinds of temptations that are stronger than others. You know what I mean. You know what your temptation is that you have to fight over and over and over because of the weakness of your flesh or because Satan is working on you on that area. You know what I'm talking about. Temptations are not sins. You know that, right? Because Jesus was tempted just like we are. He just never gave in to those temptations. Remember, Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. How can he sympathize? but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He never gave in, but he knows what it is to be tempted. But to be, to be tempted, we, we're tempted with all kinds of stuff. Now, I'd like to balance that just a little bit because I've heard some Christians who actually identify as gay Christians. Even though they are being totally celibate, they're not, they're not engaged in homosexual activity, but they identify as gay. I think it's a mistake. Just as I think it would be a mistake to identify with any other sin. You know, we don't go around identifying ourselves as, well, I'm a liar Christian because I have temptations to tell lies. Or I'm a thief Christian because I have temptations to steal. I don't think we should identify as adulterous Christians if we're tempted to commit adultery. Because, but, but, you know, even though we're not choosing to do it, <laughs> those may be our temptations. But we don't identify with temptations, do we? We shouldn't. We identify with Christ. We're Christians, period. (laughs) But the big problem today in the church is that there are others in the sexual revolution who call themselves Bible-believing Christians who've decided that it's okay to be a practicing homosexual. They would say, I am a practicing homosexual, but I'm also a conservative Bible-believing Christian. And there are quite a few other Christians who are beginning to say, you know what? Maybe these guys have a point. Maybe they're right, and they're beginning to agree. There are people out there who are convinced that the church has had it wrong all along about what the Bible teaches about homosexuality, that we've just missed it. And we need to be familiar with the arguments, and we need to have a clear understanding of what God actually teaches in His Word. And, guys, listen please, even though we may not really feel very comfortable about it, we need to be teaching Christians, including Christian kids, God's clear truth about these things. We need to teach these things openly in our congregations. If we decline to teach the truth in this critical area where Satan is attacking so viciously in our day, we're leaving people vulnerable. They're wide open to Satan's attacks. They're wide open to confusion. They're wide open to deception because it is everywhere. Okay, let's start here. There are those who say when the Bible seems to be condemning homosexual behavior, it really isn't condemning homosexual behavior that's between two homosexual adults who are in a covenant commitment with each other. They will call it marriage, by the way, and the government may call it marriage, but God doesn't call it marriage in the Bible. So they say that what the Bible is condemning is not what they're doing. They say the Bible merely condemns predatory homosexuality, like rape, maybe, or maybe it's condemning promiscuous homosexuality, like having a whole lot of partners. Or maybe they'll say it's condemning homosexual pederasty, which is homosexual activity with kids. And they will claim sometimes that in the Roman world, these were the only kinds of homosexuality around. Predatory homosexuality, promiscuous homosexuality, and homosexual pederasty. So they say that's that's what Paul was condemning. Remember, he's writing to the Romans, right? Well, if they're right, then the church has been wrong for 2,000 years. Now, listen, the authority is really not what the church has taught for 2,000 years, although we better take it seriously if the church has taught it for 2,000 years. But the authority still is God's Word, so just because something's been taught for a long time doesn't mean it's true. We have to keep going back to Scripture. That's our source of authority. But if these guys are wrong about what they're teaching about homosexuality, and I believe they are wrong, And if it really is true that all homosexual behavior really is sin, and I believe that's what the Bible teaches, then that means that all homosexual behavior will inevitably, eventually, lead to bad outcomes. Bad outcomes for the people involved in many cases, bad outcomes for their families in many cases, bad outcomes for future generations, maybe. Bad outcomes for our culture, our nation. Sin always brings with it a horrible cost, and it's hard for us to see it all. That's why God has to reveal it to us in His Word. So let's look at a few passages of Scripture that speak to this issue we're talking about right now. First, I want us to back off just a little bit and try to get God's overall perspective on the whole issue. Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Listen, Male and female, He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created something very beautiful when He created us male and female and created us to be sexual beings. And commanded us, in the context of a marriage covenant, to have lots of babies. (laughs) And of course, in the New Testament, God makes it clear that marriage pictures our relationship with Christ. Remember that, Ephesians chapter 5? He quotes Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 when he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So it makes all kinds of sense, doesn't it, when you read what God says about marriage and about how he made us, (laughs) that Satan would be glad to work with our fallen human nature and the fact that we're living in a fallen Genesis 3 world to do anything he can to distort God's beautiful creation of gender and of sex. And sadly in our day, many people have simply decided they've got a better idea than God and they just don't want to hear God anymore because it pleases them, their flesh. Now remember, as we look at some more passages from God's Word, nothing is said in any of these passages, any of them guys, to imply that only certain kinds of homosexual activity are forbidden. It's a big argument in our day. Each passage just refers to homosexual behavior in general. To limit the meaning to predatory sex or pederasty or promiscuity is doing something that, Bible scholars call it isogesis. Have you ever heard that word, isogesis? It's a it's a way of interpreting the Bible badly. It's bad Bible interpretation. When we do isogesis, what we're doing is reading into the text what we want it to say. We're we're twisting the Scriptures. Instead, of course, God wants us to read out of the text what He's actually saying, not reading into the text what we want it to say. We've got to watch out for that. There are two passages, First Timothy chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul uses a very interesting Greek word for homosexual behavior, and the word is arsenokoites, arsenokoites. First look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral Men who practice homosexuality, and there's the word, arsenokoites, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And then he wrote this to the Corinthians, and he also uses the word here. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and there's the word, arsenokoites, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, you repented of that sin and Jesus saved you. That's true for any of us who are willing to repent and turn to Jesus. Turns out, though, according to Greek scholars, that this word, arsenokoites, is a very interesting word. It's a compound word that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, more or less invented. He put these two words together and made a compound word. So what he did was combine some Greek words that are used in the Septuagint. Do you remember the Septuagint? The Septuagint was the name given to an early Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So many, many people in in New Testament days couldn't read the Hebrew, and it was the version of the Old Testament that was used by all the Greek-speaking people. Almost everybody spoke Greek in that day in New Testament times, so this was their Old Testament. It was the Septuagint. Well, in the Old Testament, originally written in Hebrew, Leviticus 20.13 says this, If a man lies with a male... And there are two Greek words found in the Septuagint here, arsino koites. If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And the Septuagint translates that first phrase, if a man lies with a male, with two Greek words, arsino, which means male, and koites, which means to lie with. So when Paul uses the word coites, he's demonstrating to us by the choice of that word that he's not thinking about Roman culture. He's thinking about the Old Testament. In particular, he's thinking about Leviticus 20.13. He would have certainly been familiar with the Septuagint translation of Leviticus 20.13. This also might be a good place to point out that the correct translation of arsenal cortes is not men who have homosexual temptations. That's not what it says. That's not what it means. It's men who engage in homosexual behavior, or as the ESV has it, men who practice homosexuality. The point is, though, nowhere in Scripture is there some suggestion that maybe some homosexual behavior might be acceptable, or that there might be an exception of some kind to the laws prohibiting homosexual behavior. So some advocates of so-called same-sex marriage have tried to argue that, well, in Paul's day, the only homosexual behavior they witnessed was pederastic, predatory, or promiscuous because the loving, kind, homosexual behavior that they're experiencing today is actually good. And they'll argue Paul would not have condemned something that's good. But you, you see what they're doing? They're begging the question. It, it's a it's fallacious argument because when we say that, we're assuming that some forms of homosexual behavior are good. We're deciding that it's good in spite of the fact that God doesn't say that it's good at all. There's no biblical evidence that any form of homosexual behavior is called good. It's not. Kevin DeYoung is a brilliant young evangelical theologian, and he's written a very powerful book. It's very good, and it's entitled, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? You might want to check it out for yourself. DeYoung makes it clear that it's simply not the case that all homosexual behavior in ancient Rome was predatory or pederastic or promiscuous. It's just not true, even if you ignore the Leviticus passage. It's also significant that in the passage we're studying, Romans chapter 1, Paul also prohibits lesbianism. You know, we got, He said that first, verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the fact that he doesn't leave lesbianism out of his condemnation makes it seem very unlikely that he has in mind just pederasty or predatory sex or promiscuous sex. Doesn't seem likely at all, not when you think about lesbianism. Also, if Paul had pederasty in mind, there was a Greek word he could have used, pederastia. Obviously, pederastia is the word from which we get our English word, pederasty. It's almost identical. If he wanted to make exceptions, Paul could have simply added the words. The Holy Spirit could have inspired him to write something like, you know, something to this effect. When I use this word, Arsenal Cortez, I'm not including two adult men in a long-term loving relationship. He could have clarified that. There's nothing in the Bible that even hints that Paul's readers would or should have taken it that way at all. So the only way that advocates of homosexual behavior can use the Bible to make their case is to assume that all homosexual behavior in Paul's day was pederastic, predatory, and promiscuous and that the loving, lifelong, committed kind of homosexuality just didn't exist. But Kevin DeYoung points out there's another book entitled Homosexuality in Greece and Rome, a source book of basic documents. It was written by Thomas K. Hubbard, who is not a Christian, but he's studied this issue, and it undermines that idea. His point is there was not a simple pattern for homosexual behavior in ancient Greece and Rome any more than there's a simple pattern today. There are all kinds of behavior from what some people today might call bad behavior to what some people today might call loving behavior. And also, lifelong same-sex relationships were part of that mix. So the bottom line is the Bible does not condemn some kinds of homosexual behavior and approve other kinds. The Bible makes it clear that all homosexual behavior is sin. Now, there are several more arguments that we often hear made to support homosexual behavior sometimes used to try to justify homosexual behavior in our day but we're running long here so we'll take a look at some of those in the next study okay let's stop here and pray father thank you so much for revealing us to us in your word truth lord we want to stand on truth on all of your truth we want to be faithful to your word we know lord we're living in a very confusing day we're living in a day when many have rejected Your Word and many have twisted Your Word and tried to make it say something that You didn't say. Lord, we want to we be able to help people think clearly about what You really have said in Your Word. We want people to see Your truth. We want to see it ourselves and we want to help others see it. And Lord, we want to do it in a Christ-like way. We want to be loving. We want to be gracious. We want to be kind. We know that even then we will often be rejected and called names. Help us to have thick skins. Help us to be more and more like Jesus. And Lord, please help us not to be intimidated. Help us not to be fearful. Help us not to be so afraid that we'll cause a problem or that people will be offended that we'll simply back away from your truth. We want to be men and women of the book. We want to stand firm in your word, in your truth. We want you to get glory through us. And we pray that you might use us to help some others keep from falling into the horrible abyss that comes when we embrace sin and reject you and reject your truth. Thank you for putting this passage in your word. It's sobering, Lord. It gets our attention. It's heavy. We want to treat it well. We want to take your word seriously because we realize it really is your word. It's powerful. It's living, sharp. It accomplishes what you send it to accomplish every time.